0: Cochlear Implant Basics is a site for candidates and their families and friends. If you have been told you qualify for a cochlear implant, these podcast interviews tell how receiving a cochlear implant can be a life-changing experience. You will meet recipients who face a hearing loss and that hearing aids could no longer provide comprehension of speech or music. They faced growing isolation, inability to socialize or compete in the world of business. The joy of music disappeared. They explain how receiving a cochlear implant changed their lives. Welcome to Cochlear Implant Basics. A reminder, Cochlear Implant Basics is not sponsored by anyone, nor is it offering medical advice. Please consult your own healthcare provider. So this afternoon, we're talking to Herb Silverstein, the world's foremost expert in Meniere's and hyperacusis. Would you just tell me your name? Herbert Silverstein at the Silverstein Institute in Sarasota. Can you briefly tell me what Meniere's disease is? Because My own impression
1: is it has a lot of different components. and I'm very confused. It's a disease that involves the inner ear. Most of the patients complain of Vertigo attacks, recurrent episodes of dizziness where they're spinning around, nauseated, they throw up, and it usually lasts about a half an hour to an hour. And with that, they have some usually problem with their ear hearing. The hearing goes down in the ear, and they feel pressure and fullness in the ear and ringing in the ear. So that triad of symptoms of ringing in the ear hearing loss and vertigo are what Meniere's disease is. And there are various types of Meniere's disease. That's the classic type. Many times, patients have a problem with their hearing part first, and they'll have pressure and fullness in their ear and a hearing loss without the dizziness. And they'll come to the doctor with that complaint. A lot of times, the doctor will look in the ear and the ear looks normal, and he won't know what's going on because the patient's just saying that the ear feels funny and it's pressure and it's got ringing in the ears and maybe a little hearing loss. And so it can be hard to diagnose when it's early. Fortunately, we have some tests that can diagnose this before it becomes serious with the vertigo attacks and whatnot.
0: The question I have is this, if there are components and go to your general practitioner who right. has no knowledge of Meniere's that can cause a long delay in getting the
1: proper diagnosis? The practitioners, they have trouble making the diagnosis. They say if patients complain of dizziness, they'll say, go take some Meclizine or Antivert and uh, you'll get over it. And uh, they may not go into trying to find out what it is or treat it. Well, you mentioned a few
0: minutes ago about if you have a diagnosis, you can do some kind of treatment right.
1: or to right. slow it down or whatever. I'm right. curious about that. We're pioneers in early treatment for Meniere's disease. And I've written some papers called the subclinical high drops or subclinical Meniere's disease, which is what I was telling about just a little pressure in the ear, hearing loss, and some ringing in the ear. And the way we diagnose that is that it's very interesting. We have a tuning fork that at 256 or C, low C. And we take that tuning fork and we put it near the ear that the patient's complaining of. And we put it on the other ear. And they'll say that they hear the sound at a different pitch. And that's the only disease that causes that. When there's too much pressure in the inner ear, they hear the sound at a different pitch than the other ear.
0: I never knew that before. Yeah, so
1: that's all you need. Is that tuning fork? I hold that up when I give lectures, and I say that's all you need to make a diagnosis of Meniere's disease. And then what causes Meniere's disease is when we look under the microscope after somebody's passed, we see that the inner ear is swollen. The membranes are all blown out, and it's blown out like a balloon. And what happens in Meniere's disease, we believe that the pressure builds up in the ear and the fluid builds up in the inner ear. All of a sudden, it ruptures, boom. And there's a mixing of the inner ear fluids and the patients get the vertigo attack and the hearing loss and all this other stuff. And then when it collapses back and starts to heal, the patient feels better and they start getting back to normal. less symptoms
0: is there a period of time between the onset and sometimes feeling
1: normal is it weeks months actually with many year's attack usually after they get over it after a couple hours they feel pretty good then it might come back at any time yeah it comes back and then it's very fickle disease we can't tell whether it's going to come back the next day or next week or next month or a year later or it's a very fickle uh, the way it goes Well, some of the people that I've mentored over time,
0: because I'm not a doctor, I'm an interviewer, some of the people I've mentored over time had to give up driving because they just never knew if they were going to have an attack while they were driving.
1: Is that common? Very good comment. So this is one of the only times that somebody can drive with dizziness. (laughs) And the reason being is that usually before they get the attack, they get something in the ear. They feel the ear fills up with pressure. They start losing their hearing, and there's some noise in the ear, and they can pull over to the side and live through the attack. If they can't do that, some patients have a situation where they don't have any warning. They can't drive, but there are not that many that don't know that they're going to get one. They get an attack.
0: One of your patients that I mentored came from Colorado to see you, yeah. and my impression was that she hadn't driven for like 11 years. So um, I guess that must have been very rare, severe.
1: Yes. It can scare the person that they don't want to drive, even if you know they can tell, they feel that they don't have time to pull over to the side and they don't, they don't want to take a chance of having what are, a vertigo. What are your treatments for somebody who has... A- so there's a whole bunch of treatments for this. Early on, the treatment is steroids. Low-salt diet, we put the patients on a low-salt diet. We put them on a diuretic that decreases the fluid pressure in the ear, and there's a drug called beta histine, and the beta histine causes increased circulation in the ear and very little side effects, and we treat patients with that. For the attack of dizziness, we had the patients put Ativan under their tongue, half a milligram. What that does is it's sort of like a mild tranquilizer, but it has something to do with the inner ear, and it just calms the Meniere's attack down. They may have the attack, but it may be a lot less severe. And if they take two out of an, it may even be better. They may even get less symptoms. Is that an off-label use of that drug? Off-label, yeah. You've been using that for a long time. Right. And that we use instead of meclizine or Anivert, because that you have to take by mouth. And it takes about 45 minutes to go down. Patients are nauseated a lot of times when they have the attack. With the Ativan, it takes just a couple minutes because it's absorbed into the bloodstream from under the tongue. So that's the treatment for Meniere's. What about uh, hyperacusis? Can you explain that, please? Hyperacusis is a strange thing that's becoming more and more common. You know, we all worry about not being able to hear and doing all kinds of things to help the hearing better and whatnot, cochlear implants and hearing aids and all that stuff. There's a problem that patients have that some people have where they hear too much. They can be, have normal hearing or slight hearing loss. And when there's sound comes in, it bothers them. It hurts their ear. They can't be near people. They can't go in a restaurant. They can't go to movies. And they become recluses. They stay in the house. They don't want to be talking to anybody because it bothers their ear, the sound of the voice or the sound of the environment just drives them crazy. With
0: hyperacusis and a, somebody who suffers from it, is it particular sound
1: or is it all sound? So that's a good question. There are various types of sensitivity of the inner ear to sound. There's a thing called recruitment. And recruitment is where in patients with Meniere's disease, when they have a hearing loss of say 50%, when the sound gets up to 50%, they'll suddenly hear a tremendous increase in the sound in their ear and it'll bother them tremendously. So that's called recruitment. And then there's a thing called mesophonia, which is they don't like sound, like the chalk on the board where it squeaks. I don't know if you ever remember that when you were a kid. So it just bothers you you know, don't like that. And then there's another thing called phonophobia, Phonophobia is fear of sound. So those things are not something that you can treat with surgery that I developed. But the hyperacusis where the patient is having problem all the time, various sounds are bothering them, and it's changing their lifestyle. The surgery that I developed seems to work very well to help them. Could you describe the surgery? Yeah. So it's a very simple operation. It's not very dangerous, and the side effects are very minimal. And what we do is we take a little bit of tissue from above the ear. The muscle above the ear has a covering called fascia. And we take a little bit of this tissue and we make little pieces, round pieces of tissue, about two millimeters in size. And then we go lift the eardrum up. We go into the ear while the patient's asleep. We look inside the ear. And a lot of times we'll find that the little stapes bone, the third bone of hearing, is loose and it's jiggling around in the oval window too much. About half the patients have that. When you touch it, it's very mobile. So we call it hypermobile stapes. So we put a whole bunch of tissue down there on top of the stapes on the footplate and around the stapes, about 10 pieces. And then the round window, which is the window that moves out when the stapes moves in, that window we cover with some pieces of tissue. So what we're doing is dampening the sound waves that are going in. It's like wearing an earplug inside your ear, and it stays there all the time. It seems to work very well, and the patients are able to, to go into sound and live a normal life again.
0: Well, there's no re- no rejection because you're using their own
1: own tissue, right? There's no rejection, but sometimes it doesn't work. Sometimes the ears are too hypersensitive. You put the tissue down and it's not enough to dampen the sound waves and the patients will still have the problem. But fortunately, it's not very many of those. Is there a
0: future for using computer-generated parts to replace
1: what's loose? Have you looked at that? No, I don't know what that would do. But uh, the problem seems to be more of putting something down there to stop the motion of the ossicles rather than replace them. Well, if somebody
0: has a sensitivity to uh, sound and certain frequencies, their audiogram would look a little bit strange, a little bit off, right? They would have certain normal hearing and then uh, sensitivity someplace else, or no?
1: No. So what we do is we do what we call a loudness discomfort test. It's called an LDL. We put them in a sound booth and we increase the sound slowly into their ear and find out what level they can tolerate when it becomes uncomfortable to them. So you and I, or normal people, can have 90 to 100 dB of sound and they can stand that. These people, anything below 90, like 80, 70, 60, they get upset when they hear sound at that level.
0: What about the recovery? You
1: do this surgery the recovery for the, the patients is what? You know, they go on outpatient, they go home the same day, very little pain, And we take the packing out of the ear in a week, and then they can fly back to wherever they are. They come in from all over the world for this surgery. Where's your furthest patient from? We've done somebody from Ireland recently. They come from all over for it. There's something that we should talk about in the many years, the treatment, as when the medicines don't work. So the treatment is I invented a thing called the microwick, which is a little sponge My wife uh, used to call it a mouse tampon, tiny little thing. Well, we would stick that in the ear through the eardrum. And what that does is it allows the patients to put the steroids into their ear directly by themselves so the doctor doesn't have to inject it in. And then we treat the patients for a month with the steroids. And if you catch the Meniere's disease early, you may abort the whole problem by doing that. In fact, my wife... Had that in her only hearing ear, she developed Meniere's disease in her only hearing ear. She had a temporal bone fracture when she was a kid, and we gave her steroids in her ear for a week. Fortunately, it brought it back our hearing; it cured her Meniere's. Actually, that was the beginning of just starting to treat patients with that treatment because of her hearing loss. She was. One of the first patients to but use You out the mouse
0: tampon. Yeah, the like, mouse tampon. The patient is putting the drug in themselves yes.
1: for a of time. And then after a month or so... We take it out. And- we just pull it out. It doesn't hurt or anything. Okay. And we put a little paper patch over it and it heals up. The hole heals up. It's amazing. So then the next thing is, if that doesn't work, they may still have problems with that. The next thing is a thing called genomycin which is an antibiotic that kills the balance center in the inner ear. And we put that in the ear, we inject that in, and that kills the balance cells, and it will stop the attacks of Meniere's. Before the genomycin, the genomycin has been used for 20, 30 years. Before that, I invented an operation to cure the Meniere's disease vertigo, just the vertigo, by cutting the balance nerve going next to the brain. So we go in through behind the ear, and we find the nerve of hearing balance, and we just cut the balance nerve, and that stops all the vertigo. You don't see the patient again ever after that, and it preserves their hearing, what hearing they have, and it cures the vertigo. We did that from about 1977 to the 90s, and when the genomycin came out, it was an office procedure and so that was easier to do to the patients so, than the nerve section, where they had to be in the hospital for a couple of days. And so if the genomycin doesn't work, we then go back to the nerve section again. How we often still do we have to go back and, and use your alternative? The nerve sections, we don't do very often. We maybe do three or four a year, but most of the time, the genomycin seems to work. So that being used, the general is being used... By everybody, all over, by everybody, yeah.
0: And if it doesn't work, then they call you...
1: They've learned how to do the nerve section too, so they do that too.
0: Now, my question is this. If it's on one side, you have a balance center on the other. Right. Hopefully, you can't cut both.
1: So here's the situation with that. It's usually in one ear, but in 15%, it goes in both ears. So you have bilateral... and. We call that autoimmune inner ear disease when it's in both ears, because we think it's related to the immune system that they get this in both ears. Dr. Dandy used to, in the 30s, he would cut both balanced nerves in both ears. And so uh, if the patient had a bilateral, and so what that means is that they have trouble with balance forever, but they walk with a wide base gait, but they don't have an attack of Meniere's disease, and they have some other symptoms with this when you lose both vestibular systems. But you can recover from it with therapy, and, but it's much better to recover from loss of balance nerve on one side than on both sides. If you lose the balance nerve on one side, you're almost normal after a while, after you do therapy and time. How much therapy is involved in this? They usually do it for a couple months, And they do the exercises at home, balance exercises at home, a couple of times a day.
0: What's the most important thing a person with Menares or hyperacusis should know?
1: Well, that there's treatment for it. We know how to take care of it. And uh, that you know they need to get it diagnosed and treated and how severe it is and treated.
0: I have four Facebook sites, but one of them is called Hearing Loss, the Emotional Side. And this is where people who are totally lost come to find out what's going on or find right. sympathy, which is what we do. But uh, Meniere's is mentioned so often, right. I, I have not really had an opportunity to explain to people. And right. I thank you for your time to do this.
1: Okay, well, good.
0: And if somebody needs treatment, where do they go? Where do you suggest they go? Well,
1: they should go to a center, somebody specialized in ear work, ear surgery and ear diseases. So you advise them to get help. Right? Oh, yeah, definitely.
0: I would love to know more about the your Research Foundation,
1: what yeah. you do, what the objectives are. If you, you take a few minutes to tell us? Sure. So the foundation I started in 1979 because I was involved in research all my life and research and development. And I felt that research should be part of your practice of medicine. So I started the foundation. And so... Our mission was to do research into finding better treatments for dizziness and for hearing loss and for also educating the public and educating doctors. And that's why we started a training program here where we have trained uh, 49 doctors now in these procedures that we do, teaching them about Meniere's disease and hyperacusis and all and many other things that we do with the inner ear. And then there's a community service that we give. So we've treated many indigent patients in Sarasota County or in the area where they have a problem with their ears, hearing loss or dizziness. And we've given hearing aids to people that haven't can't afford hearing aids. It's been a great thing, the foundation, because we've made a lot of discoveries and made a lot of progress in different treatments for hearing loss and dizziness through the years and we we keep on the forefront of research and development so we're one of the top areas offices for research in the country one of the exciting things that we're doing right now as far as hearing loss is that we're injecting a medication into the ear that causes regeneration of the little hairs in the inner ear and restores some hearing to patients and we're involved in that, and probably have the biggest selection of patients that we're doing that on. Is that the
0: RX three twenty two? Yes. I had no idea you were doing it here.
1: Oh, we're we're the top office in the country, and we'll be the lead author in the paper that's coming out on it. When's the paper expected? We're just uh, terminating or closing down the study now, and so they'll be usually takes months till they get that done. Is this the second or third phase? know, I'm not sure about that. I think it's the third phase. We're going into another phase. We're getting ready to start another series of patients where they've increased the concentration of the medication. And we're just going to start on that so that we can get more patients that will have a result from the injection. Can you talk about the test at all or is it still under wraps? I can talk about it. What about the results that you've seen? Well, I can't talk about That's that what you mean. Yeah, because it's a double-blind study, okay. so we don't know the results. We know that some patients have shown improvement, and we we don't know who's had the placebo and who's had the real stuff. But we believe that by increasing the dose of the medication, more patients will have the result and have hearing improvement. I find it fascinating because... Now,
0: I had a progressive loss from scarlet fever, and I had a sudden loss when I was 30, and I did not get a cochlear implant back then because it was very primitive, and I didn't want right. to lose music, and I was waiting for science to find a cure right. for deafness. And I waited 35 years until right. I got cochlear implants. So again, one of the most common things I find online discussions are about these tests. That people are waiting to get a cochlear implant until they know what the results of these tests are, right. they're afraid that if they get a cochlear implant, it will destroy their chances of ever getting something else that comes along.
1: I think that they're trying to do the cochlear implant now and preserve hearing, try to preserve what hearing is in the ear without destroying it. It's possible that they'd still be able to use the drugs, uh, but uh, I'm not sure about that because the implant may... Block the medications going in and whatnot. So it's hard to say. They might uh, have to remove the implant yeah. in order to see if it works. Right. But I, I'm not sure that wow. they can do that.
0: We've covered a lot of ground. And I thank right. you. Do you have something you would like to add before we close?
1: Huh? Just that uh, it's been a great honor and a privilege to be able to help a lot of patients and come up with a lot of new treatments and different procedures and instruments and things like that that I've done throughout my life and it's been a lot of fun and I'm still working at an advanced age keep and working uh, I'm gonna keep working <laughs> till the end
0: I want to live to 140 my work in the budget. <laughs> let me and you have the education series coming up is that something new that- no we, we have that
1: all the time okay yeah
0: I'm going to be promoting the education series on my sites and other Facebook sites great, build up an audience. Dr. Silverstein, it has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your All time. right, Richard, thank you.